Hello, I'm Rachel Borthwick, and welcome back to Out of the Closet and Into the Pews. On our last episode, we spoke with Dr. Melissa Wilcox about what liberation really means for queer communities. Out of the Closet and Into the Pews aims to get us to understand that queer power is not inherently a secular movement, but rather that many queer folk understand their own resistance to be associated with their faith. Here to help us understand the construction of religion and queerness as inherently conflicting vehicles is Dr. Heather R. White. Heather R. White is a visiting assistant professor in religion and queer and gender studies at the University of Puget Sound. Her research focuses on religion, identity, and politics with an emphasis on queer, post-secular, and critical race theories as frameworks for interpreting recent U.S. history. Dr. White's first book, Reforming Sodom, Protestants, and the Rise of Gay Rights, investigates how religion and LGBTQ activism came to be perceived as natural enemies. It also tells about the surprising ways that progressive Christianity shaped the early movement of gay rights. The book has been featured in the Huffington Post, Religion and Politics, the LA Review of Books, and Religion Dispatches, and was even listed in the top 10 best LGBT nonfiction of 2015. Dr. White serves on the advisory board of the LGBTQ Religious Archives Network and on the steering committee of the Queer Studies in Religion Program Unit of the American Academy of Religion. With a focus on mainline Protestants and gay right activists in the 20th century, Heather R. White challenges the usual picture of perennial adversaries with a new narrative about America's religious and sexual past. White argues that today's anti-gay Christian traditions originated in the 1920s when a group of liberal Protestants began to incorporate psychiatric and psychotherapy into Christian teaching. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. It's good to be here. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your story. How did you come to study the specific intersection of religion and sexuality? What came first for you? And did you grow up around any faith-based communities? Yeah, it's a good question. I grew up um, in Raleigh, North Carolina. I grew up in a pretty conservative, evangelical, white evangelical context. And so I came to study religion sort of through moving out of um, the understanding of Christianity and God and the world that I grew up with and, and sort of getting some some intellectual leverage on being able to see a different way of looking at myself, a different way of looking at the world, really through my studies. And that wasn't only the study of religion, it was also taking gender studies classes, it was taking sociology classes, it was, I mean, just so much of what I encountered as an undergraduate, and then moving on into graduate school, really shifted the way that I saw myself and got me so just totally fascinated with being able to understand more clearly how religion shapes the world so forcefully, because I had experienced that as like, wow, like the sort of the set of beliefs you grow up with have a profound shaping influence on you, it has a profound shaping influence on the world. And I what drew me into religious studies as a field was to be able to look at that more closely. Yeah, Dr. White, you mentioned about moving away from home and thinking about how religion influenced your own values and the values of those around you. I'm wondering, what does it mean to you to study religion queerly? Or what does it mean to the academic discipline of religious studies to study religion queerly? I would say it means to, it's like what queer studies offers for me is a, a method for deconstructing the claim claims about the way things are, right? So to study religion queerly is to approach it through a deconstructive lens, a lens that investigates not only sort of what religious groups say about themselves and to take them seriously 
And also like, how does this construct the world? But then also like, what is the world in which these claims make sense? And in some ways that turns religion religion inside out, it tur- turns the world so that religions make inside out. And I, I, would, I would say doing that both queerly and seriously is sort of an opportunity to think about how to live within them. And at the same time, think about the moves they make, the, the like construction is sort of a, a, a funny word to make sense of, but really like how they are world making. What do those worlds feel like when you inhabit them? And also like, what are their building blocks to be able to identify how those worlds are made? Yeah. And when we think about world building, I guess there's often an assumption today that queer religious individuals maybe inhabit a kind of different world than mm. social justice activists or people who maybe queer folk who maybe identify as secular. And what do you make of that assumption? Oh, I think that people who are secular also li- live in a world constructed by beliefs. Beliefs are like, I could use a number of different words in place of belief, and we could make sense of this in a different kind of way. But there is not a constructed world outside of something called religion, that most people who are secular or who claim secularity as their outlook are as much influenced by religious world making, even if they don't recognize the way that those you know, I guess we'll just continue this metaphor, right? Even if they don't recognize the constructed nature, like what those buildings blocks are of the seemingly religion neutral world that they live in, right? There's no way out of religion. And in the United States, there's no place, particularly for folks who claim no religion, there's no place out of structuring dynamics of Anglo-Protestantism is the theoretical way I would put that concept. Yeah, and this takes me a little bit on a different direction. A lot of your work is really complex and important as religious studies is transformed. Reforming Sodom does more than blame liberal Protestants for anti-homosexual religious traditions. It portrays that some liberal Protestants were important allies to the movement for gay rights. How do we really spotlight the role of religion in queer rights to transform and contextualize the history of queer resistance and social movements? So many ways. I, I can, I'll just talk about the way that I do it. I mean, that's Reforming Sodom is this book that is about Protestant and especially liberal Protestant influences within the religion versus queer debates. And what that book traces is how most of the mainstream d- dynamics, like the two sides that we see pitched on either side of a religious freedom issue, you know, whether that's whether a a cake baking, a bakery has the right to refuse to make a cake for a queer couple, right? So there's sort of the religious side of it where you have the Christian bakers who are saying, no, we have the religious right to not bake the cake. And then there's the queer side of it where the queer couple is saying, but religious freedom doesn't let you trample all over my rights as queer folks, right? So that gets pitched as a religion versus queer debate. And it would seem that there's only religion on one side of the issue the Christian bakers who refused to bake the cake. But one of the things I work to show in the sort of when you take this step back and look at the emergence of LGBT movements, as you can see how much liberal Protestantism has shaped the dominant narratives about self and about identity and about the way we conceptualize rights and even the way that queer identity is positioned over and against religion, that there are liberal Protestant influences um, within that mainstream, seemingly secular 
history, that mainstream, seemingly secular sort of set of concepts that are, that are pervasive even today, right? And at the same time, there is also actually also a liberal Protestant history to those conservative, anti-gay ways of reading the Bible, ways of connecting therapeutic beliefs about sexuality to religious understandings of the self, that there really is no way There's no outside to the liberal Protestant influences, both within LGBT movements and also within even some of these like conservative Protestant movements as well. And one of the reasons why that becomes so invisible is because of the way we think of liberal religion as not religion at all, but sort of a form of spirituality that is just accommodating to secular norms and secular culture. But secular culture is already infused with a kind of religious liberalism that is has been shaped historically by liberal Protestantism. You mentioned the issue with the Baker idea and religion only being perceived as on one side. This brings me to the idea of spiritual fragmentation among queer folks. What I mean by this is that more and more often queer folks feel this frightening and painful feeling of their old sense of identity, whether that be religious or spiritual, crumble away and fall. And they enter this new territory of exploring this queer identity that to many people feels unknown. Do you have any advice to those navigating these feelings as a scholar of religion? Yeah, one of the things that I think was so interesting to me was, here's a really specific example, actually, when I was studying the example of the Metropolitan Community Church. And the Metropolitan Community Church was started in 1968, so before Stonewall. It was started in Los Angeles by a Pentecostal minister named Troy Perry. And Troy Perry's whole narrative about founding the church is really interesting. Like That's another thing to talk about. But one of the things that I really was interested in about the beginning of the church was how hard they worked to sort of address the needs of the religiously diverse set of people who attended the congregation. And it was sort of important that they have services that felt spiritually real to people who were Mormon, Catholic, Pentecostal, right? Presbyterian, Jewish, non-religious, but interested in spirituality. Like it was one of the most interreligious and interfaith congregations maybe ever, right? It's a really rare experiment in religion and spirituality but with attention to like what makes religion feel real. And a lot of that is experience and nostalgia. Like it makes a difference to sing the songs you grew up in. It makes a difference to have moments of community building, you know, just working to create that sense of spirituality as real while also being wildly inventive and doing something with spirituality that most mainstream religious folks saw as not religious at all, which is accepting, accepting queer folks as they are. So as Troy Perry tells that story, the church was founded on the revelation that God loved gay people, right? And for that church, that was truly a spiritual revelation. But at the same time, for the dominant homophobic, anti, you know, anti-homosexual, to use the language, or anti-queer, a religious world that simply meant that they weren't religious at all, right? So I, th- I would take away from that that one thing that 
queer folks can do is think about what makes religion feel real. And also notice when you attend or when we attend a place where it doesn't feel real, right? Why is that true, right? Like, what is the thing that makes it feel real in the, in the places where it does? And pay attention to what that is, because that, that is, I mean, that gets us back to like how to construct worlds. That thing that makes a, a thing feel real is perhaps the most important constructed tool to pay attention to. Right. And there's a way that that way of paying attention is important to, I mean, one, like figuring out how anti-queer views have been attached so formidably to religion. And sometimes I think that helps to make sense of the way that it seems that all religion, like any religion that's actually real, (laughs) religion sort of capital R writ large in the world is like, by nature, anti-queer. And that's actually having to do with what you've experienced in the world and what feels real about it. Yeah, and what I'm thinking a lot about right now is how new a lot of this work is in the past 20 to 30 years. I'm really wondering how religious studies has adapted in the time of your career from an undergrad to the point in your career now. How has religious studies adapted to contemporary developments and changes in queer and gender studies? Well, the hugest one I've seen is there's an annual conference for all the religion scholars in the U.S. and really internationally. The American Academy of Religion is sort of the academic society for people who study religion. And I remember attending my first conference, and it would have been in like maybe 2003, 2004. And there was a session (laughs) that was interesting to me that addressed queer themes and religion. It was like, that's the one I need to make sure I go to. And when I go to that conference now, every single time slot has at least one thing that I feel, oh, that's something I really want to go to. So it's like this remarkable transformation of a conference that had almost, had very little to offer around that intersection to a conference that, I mean, like everybody picks what they attend. So there's really multiple conferences within a conference, but there is a conference within that conference where every time slot you could attend a session that has a fascinating examination of the intersection of religion and queerness. And I'll say not just, you know, that one intersection, but also expands it to think about, you know, multiple religious traditions that looks at intersecting dynamics of race and class and nation and so on and so forth. So it has really expanded, amplified, and is like, it's a whole party now. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I want to, I want to take us in a little bit of a different direction and focus a little bit more on your work, thinking about either your work in reforming Sodom or any other piece of academic scholarship, you know, you've kind of worked on. Why do you think we see social movements especially queer social movements, tend to characterize LGBTQ plus rights as exclusive from, you know, maybe religion or religious movements? Well, I think a lot of progressive folks think of religion as backwards and think of religion as sort of as the as a conservative force. And that almost definitionally so, right? That like to what makes religion religion is that it has a conservative force 
that it is pulling people into the past and it is the opposite of progressivism. It is the opposite of liberation, right? So there's, I think there's, there's a lot of that assumption and it's still pretty pervasive among some activist groups. And honestly, I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And that may be connected to how powerful conservative religious voices are in our culture and how most folks who come from a religious background are coming from one that where they, they, the way they've experienced, we've experienced religion is actually as this conservative force in our lives. Yeah. And I'm wondering for our listeners, you know, who maybe haven't read your work in Reforming Sodom, if you can kind of outline for us, like you talk a lot about liberal Protestants being important for gay rights movements. I'm wondering if you can, you know, talk a little bit about your work, how you kind of came to that and, you know, what are you really looking at in your book? Um, Well, I'll start with what a liberal Protestant is, because I didn't grow up really knowing what that was. Actually, in my (laughs) in my worldview growing up, that would be like a cultural Christian, which is to say someone who's not really Christian. So that's a uh, really offensive way of characterizing someone else's religion. Right. And it's also inaccurate. Right. Because, I mean, liberal Protestants believe many of the things that more conservative Protestants do. And that took me back to some of how beliefs about religion and homosexuality and especially Christianity and homosexuality came to be formed to begin with. And that that's like the 1920s and 30s. So nearly, it's pretty wild, that's nearly 100 years ago, right? When, when people like, I mean, the, the names that we know in the therapeutic par- paradigm would be people like Freud and maybe Havelock Ellis. So, so they were not either of them liberal Protestant, neither of them actually were US Americans, but liberal Protestants in the United States were reading them and thinking about this therapeutic approach to sexuality and reframing their ideas of what it meant to be normal and reframing their ideas about how ideas about morality were unhelpful for actually shaping people to live what they saw as normal, healthy lives. So there was a way that the language of normalcy and health replaced overtly moralizing language of like good and bad sexual practices. And those liberal Protestants, again, like very deeply religious, very deeply Christian, but also like with a lot of faith in the way that scientific insights expressed truth about what was really real in the world. And so if these scientists were saying that sexual normalcy needed a non-judgmental approach, they're like, well, we need to do that within our Christianity. So the takeaway story really is that most of the ideas that we have today about what the Bible has to say specifically about homosexuality, what Christianity, or even this fictional category, Judeo-Christian traditions have to say about sexuality. Most of that like descriptive stuff we think about what religion says about sexuality was actually knit together, put together within that time period as a fusion of liberal religion and therapeutic psychological approaches to sexuality. And I trace how those ideas sort of spun out in different movements and movements within mainline and mainline Mainline Protestants are like the churches you would see if you walk down literally the main street of most of most small towns. There's a Presbyterian, a Baptist, an Episcopal, etc. church. So that mainline Christianity was really the center, the dominant 
religious group in the United States. It's actually less pervasive now. There are fewer mainline Protestants now. But in the 20th century, and especially the early and mid 20th century, it was very much a dominant cultural force. So I look at how those ideas, this knitting together of therapeutic science with Christianity shaped mainline Protestant ideas about sexuality, shaped ideas about heterosexuality, and also shaped many of the assumptions and some of the activism of the early movements for gay rights. And the last little bit of it is to look at how more conservative Protestants took up those same ideas and retooled them in different ways and used them to animate anti-gay politics. Yeah, and Dr. White, your work kind of shows us how early that assumption is, right? That's only 100 years old that religion and queerness are seen as such conflicting forces. But given that the scholarship is still recently new, I'm wondering what are some implications of queer theoretical scholarship for the study of religion and social movements, but also what are some challenges you faced when writing for Forming Sodom? And you know, why have the intersections of queer studies and religion been so notoriously difficult and understudied? Well, it's, it was a challenge, but it was also an opportunity to realize how little had been written about, like I had no idea that there had been clergy that in pretty much every city where there was an early gay rights organization, mainline clergy, liberal clergy were there as supporters. Most of those early gay rights organizations met in churches, like they were using mimeograph machines, that old fancy or that old technology, right? provided by churches. Some of them were funded by liberal Christian groups. So I was shocked to see how much involvement there was from liberal or progressive Christian leaders. I was shocked to see how how much the movements like the Gay Activist Alliance and the Gay Liberation Front, which we know, you know, by reading about Stonewall, how much those groups were moving alongside that we could actually think of the the gay liberation movement or at least the the broader gay movement as a spiritual awakening movement in some ways because there were so many different ways of thinking and approaching and experimenting with spirituality and religion. You could see it as a spiritual or religious movement as much as it was a political movement. But because most scholars have not been looking for religion, it always just seemed like a weird oddity that, you know, oh, isn't it so strange that in San Francisco, there is this, you know, Council on Religion and the Homosexual, or isn't it so strange that this church was a place that all of the, you know, LGBT groups in New York met, or sort of go to any one of those examples. And to scholars who are studying queer movements in that place, religion just looks out of place, looks weird. But when you start putting those patterns together, there's a larger pattern of really broad religious and spiritual influence. So that was a challenge to not have a lot of previous literature by scholars and especially historians to draw from. But at the same time, as a person who's working on something, having that opportunity to write something that's new is really exciting. Your work shows us, Dr. White, that this assumption that religion and sexuality are conflicting forces is Pretty new. What would you say to people who want to learn more or queer folks who've internalized this as something that is not new and this is something that they should think of when it comes to their own religious and queer identities? It's a perfect question. And I would I would respond actually by having them think about how their answer and their feeling changes when I use the word spirituality. So 
religion and sexuality feel like opposing things. But when you hear spirituality and religion, I would say most folks don't think about them as opposing, right? And in fact, they might be able to think about and talk about the things that they identify as spiritual. And that could be anything from, I mean, for some folks, they can think about sexuality as something that is actually spiritual, right? Or they can think about spiritual practices that are part of their part of their own sense of wellness and connection to what is good in the world, right? So spirituality as a category doesn't feel like it's fundamentally in opposition to sexuality. So then, you know, so I'd, I think I'd have a check-in and be like, right, <laughs> right? Let's talk about that for a second. And then we'd, we'd have to step back and be like, okay, hold on. How do you decide whether a thing is spiritual? And how do you decide whether it's religion? Like sort of put those two labels and opposites, you know, I don't know, put them in separate columns and make a list of like how to recognize something that you call spirituality and how to recognize something called religion. And if we were to flesh out that list, right, spirituality is about health and wholeness. It's non-coercive. It's not about someone telling you what to do. It's authentic. We'd have religion is like dictated by God. It's intolerant, it's rules, it's not about authenticity. Like we would sort of make this whole list. And then I would say, let's read a liberal Protestant sort of, I mean, we could almost pick anything from liberal Protestant theologians. We could even just pick one. One of the people I write about in Reforming Sodom, who's a really important theologian and, and minister in the 1920s through, I'm gonna be really loose with my time period, through 60s, right? And we could look at what he's saying about religion and spirituality. And you know what? That map would fit. Spirituality is authentic. Religion is judgmental, right? So that's to say he invented the, or was one of the people who was inventing the paradigm for recognizing and categorizing religion as separate from spirituality. And if you have a Protestant theologian setting up that grid and it fits with what you believe, that tells you that you've been influenced by liberal Protestantism, right? As a, as like, as a categorizing system, even if it doesn't feel like Protestant has dictated to you what you believe about God, it dictates to you whether you think that God is important in defining what counts as spirituality or as religion. So I think that's the approach that I would take. Yeah, Dr. White, when I first read your work, I was thinking a lot about that, even if it seems that at glance, queer rights have primarily been achieved in secular environments, the relationship between queer liberation and secularism has a complex and contradictory history. Your historical analysis in Reforming Sodom, which traces further back than Stonewall and combines queer religious experiences, encourages us to rethink the secularization process from the blurring of religious, queer, and secular spheres. You note that the Stonewall narrative and its commemoration were a perfect vehicle for fusing gay and religious identities into a seamless whole. Your last chapter really had me pause and think how you were connecting Stonewall with religious events. I'm wondering if you could continue this thread for our listeners and kind of outline that, but also tell us, like, did you receive any reactions to this work? Because Stonewall really, in a lot of circles, is not considered as a religious event. And actually, so, and I'm, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sort of summarize the main point of that chapter. And I'll say that one of the things that I, I was struggling with in that chapter was figuring out how to explain like why it is that most narratives about Stonewall 
are seem just totally secular. And by totally secular, I mean that like religion has nothing to do with this at all. You know, the story of a, a raid by the police at a queer bar, the queers fight back, they resist. And this is sort of the beginning of the liberation movement. So that's probably the story most people know, even if historians have corrected many parts of it. But the interesting thing is why it is that people know that story isn't simply because it happened. Like, I mean, in that we know that fact because there actually are earlier movements of moments and movements of resistance against the police by queer folks, earlier riots, earlier protests. It wasn't the start. It wasn't the only, it wasn't the beginning. Like all of these things that present Stonewall as I like this phrase to the birthplace of queer rights are historically mostly fictional, right? So I'm, and that also as a descriptive story about what happened it would seem to be totally absent of religion. But the part of it that helped me step back from this was to say, well, this isn't a descriptive story. This is what scholars of religion would call a myth. And that doesn't mean that it's false necessarily, but the way that scholars of religion study myths is to look at them as structuring realities, as world building narratives, right? And Stonewall is absolutely a world making or world building narrative that structures a idea of a queer community that is diverse and like uni yet unified, that has this moment of sort of origin story that we can all connect to. In fact, we like to fight about <laughs> who was most important in that particular story. And in finding a representative of each group within the LGBTQ plus community, right? It places each of that diverse population there at the heart of the origin of the movement. And in some ways is a way for us to, to really work on assigning sacred importance to marginalized groups within queer communities. And that's what I mean by calling it a myth. So when looking at the myth-making patterns and sort of looking at how this, this narrative came to take up myth-making importance, right? means looking at not only what happened at that event, it means looking at what happened after it. So how did it become so important? <laughs> and part of that story is looking at how each city and town, different localities across the United States, literally took up the ritual. And the ritual, of course, is commemorating the event, the moment of pride celebrations that all over all over the US and now all over the world, remember Stonewall as a foundationally important event for queer folks. So there is an entire ritual that has been built out of that. And I mean, not incidentally, groups like the Metropolitan Community Church and especially other religious and spiritual members of queer communities in the 1970s were really important in organizing Stonewall commemorations in their city. The Metropolitan Community Church especially was really important for organizing Stonewall commemorations in their cities. So there we could see Christian fingerprints and, and religious or spiritual fingerprints all over the place in the making of the Stonewall narrative. There's a lot, I will say there's a, there's a lot more to spell out than I, I mean, I, I feel like the argument in that final chapter has is doing two things at once. It's telling about the myth-making practices of Stonewall while also using that to feature and highlight how important religion was to movement building, especially during the 1970s, which is the focus of that chapter. 
and to say that the story about how it all began seems to hide religion as something that was important. But in many ways, it's because those religious people were there lifting up the story, like marching in the streets to commemorate that moment. We're building that myth that incidentally, like I don't, well, they didn't think it excluded them. They recognized in that story a very familiar one that in many ways is a very Christian story about the despised and the wretched of the earth facing off a moment of violence, like, I mean, almost literally on a Friday night and then having this victorious moment of overcoming on, a, on Sunday. So there's, there's parts of that that, are, that really fit the Easter story and the Passover story within Christianity. And the Christianity story echoes parts of Jewish narratives about Passover. So there is some, some interesting Judeo-Christian echoes within the Stonewall narrative. So that is how I would pretty quickly, even though probably pretty quickly, but with a lot of detail, explain that last chapter. Yeah. And, you know, if we're talking about moments of queer resistance in Stonewall, my next question is kind of how as scholars do we move forward in, you know, accounting for networks of power when we're telling stories of queer religious people? And what I really mean by this is how do we move away from telling only stories about gay white men as the sole authors of LGBTQ plus experiences? I mean, that's a challenge to me and it's a challenge for all of us, especially a challenge for white folks. It's also, I mean, it's a challenge for navigating the, the dominant archives, the records, because most of the records that we have easiest access to tell us the story about the folks with most privilege within a movement. So part of that is questioning what other sources and what other archives are out there. I also think there's a lot to learn by focusing really intensely on the local and by moving away from the sort of national framing of stories to looking at what happened in, I mean, sort of put in, I live in Tacoma, Washington right now. So what's the story here in Tacoma, Washington? I'm working on a, a next project that actually looks at New York City, which is, which is a pretty outsized force in, in this history, but looking specifically at the congregation that provided space for most of those movements that started right after the Stonewall riots. And when you start looking more intensely and more focused on local stories, where are they located? What was happening in that neighborhood? What happens if we tell the story of the emergence of kind of movement activism uh, or the radicalization of movement activism at this like northern edge of Chelsea in the 19, late 1960s and 70s instead of the village. There's a slightly different version of the story that comes out. That would also be true if we were to say, let's look at Queens, you know, to go back to the New York story or in my case, Tacoma. Like the story here is the Indian bars, the Puyallup Nation and the the establishments that allowed queer folks to dance and to, and to socialize, many of them were owned by the Puyallup Nation. So that, again, is a different story about queer emergence that decenters dominant white and dominant male voices and tells a different story about what's happening. So I think that kind of re-narrating and that kind of recentering is available in so many places, but it takes some thinking about what is my context and how does that context shape the story? And if that context is pretty white and pretty male and pretty privileged, how can I recenter this to think about how to reframe the story? 
And my last question for you, Dr. Y, if we were, you know, stuck in an elevator together and you had five minutes to kind of tell me the takeaway from your book, your scholarship, what would it be that you told me? It would be that religion is more important than you think in the emergence of what we think of as the most secular movement of, for liberation. And that there's a lot more religion in that, in that story, and thus a lot more to find out about religion in the world around us. Yeah, Dr. White, that seems like a perfect place to finish. Thank you so much for your scholarship and joining us today. Thank you.